two summers ago, Hannah and I had the opportunity to go on a, a quick backpacking trip up to Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. If you haven't been there, it's stunning. It's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, right on the shore of Lake Superior. And we like to backpack when we can, so we took a little quick weekend trip up there. And our second night, we had this campsite right next to the beach. And that evening, it was perfect out. It was in August, there wasn't any wind, the sun was setting, and you kind of feel like you're at the ocean, right? I mean, you can watch the sun just drop right into the water. Now, as we're sitting there, I hear this voice in the back of my mind yelling. And I'm thinking, what is going on? I must be imagining things. It's a perfect night. But the yelling got louder, and I realized I wasn't imagining things. I turned around, and I see these three young adults a couple hundred yards away coming down the trail, yelling and waving their hands. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. Remember, it's sunset. That's an important detail to remember. So as I approach them uh, and try to figure out what's going wrong, uh, there's a couple things that I notice. They're wearing shorts and t-shirts. They don't have any jackets on. It does get a little cold next to Lake Superior at night. Uh, there's one person that has one of those drawstring backpacks. You know what I'm talking about? And it was clearly empty. Like they'd ran out of food hours ago. And they're holding disposable water bottles that are also empty. They clearly don't have a water filter. So as I approach them, uh, they very quickly are relieved to say, we haven't seen people for hours. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be good. And they ask, how far away are we from the Chapel Road parking area? They explain that uh, we don't have a map, our phones are dead, and it wouldn't matter because we lost service anyway. So I think somebody gave us wrong directions a couple hours ago. We, we've been hiking for hours and we haven't seen anybody. Can you point us to the Chapel Road parking area? I didn't even have to look at my map. I knew exactly how far away they were. Nine miles. And it's sunset. Now, when I told him they were nine miles away, you should have seen the look on this guy's face. It was not the look of, you won the lottery, right? It was the look of, your basement is filled with three feet of sewage, that type of look, right? And they were mortified. They were lost. They didn't just need directions. They needed divine intervention. Now, maybe you can think of a time in your life when you've been lost. Now, hopefully not that lost. Maybe somebody gave you bad directions, or maybe somebody gave you the wrong address, or maybe you put 17th Street instead of 17th Avenue into your GPS, and you ended up 30 minutes late for a very important meeting. Thank you, Wasa. I'm not sure why that's a good idea. <laughs> we all know what it's like to be lost, but if we want to get to the right place, we've got to know the right destination, right? And we've also have to know the directions on how to get there. If we don't have the destination, but we have the directions, it's sort of like we're on a treasure hunt or a scavenger hunt. But if we have the destination without the directions, we're sort of like our lost hiker in the woods, and we don't want that either. Now, spiritually, we're not on a spiritual scavenger hunt. We've got to know where we're going, and we've got to know how to get there. I know what you're thinking. Sam, this is obvious. I know where we're going spiritually, right? We're going to heaven, and we all know how to get there. But do we? We live in one of the most pluralistic societies imaginable. It doesn't really hold to much truth. A world that says, you can believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want to believe. And we're all just going to get to the same spot. Just, just start driving. Just, just follow your heart and, and you'll get to heaven. It's really not a big deal. That advice is about as illogical as telling our lost hikers, 
just start walking. I know that it's sunset, but just follow your heart and you'll make it back to your car. That's stupidity. It's the same thing if we try to apply the same principle spiritually. We have to know where we're going and we have to know how to get there. And spiritually, there's one desired destination and there's one path on how to get there. That's what we're gonna see in our text tonight. John chapter 14. It might be one of the most famous passages in all of John, but I'm guessing we, we don't always think about the context. We maybe have heard verse six before, but to understand what's going on, we're just gonna work through this systematically and I'll explain it as we go. So follow along with me as I read John 14, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Let's stop right there. Who's talking? Jesus, great. Yeah, the Sunday school answer. And who's he talking to? His disciples, right? I mean, remember what we talked about last week. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He washes their feet. They celebrate communion for the first time. It's the Passover. And and now Jesus is giving this last speech, this last address, this last conversation with his disciples. Within 24 hours, he's gonna be in the grave. And this is it. And the disciples are kind of clueless. They're not totally sure what's going on, but, but Jesus is sharing this last address with his disciples. And here's what he says in verse 14. Uh, chapter 14, rather, verse one, don't let your hearts be troubled. That word troubled is important. It's the same word to describe how Jesus felt in the garden of Gethsemane as he was thinking about going to the cross. His heart was troubled. Now, certainly we haven't felt troubled like that, but we kind of know the feeling. It's that unsettledness, that uneasiness in our chest. It's that feeling when, when we make that huge mistake and we don't really know what to do next. It's that, that unsettledness of getting pulled over for going 20 over in a 25 and the police officer's approaching your car. It's that uneasiness when you pick up the phone and it's that relative and you know they don't have good news. Troubled. Being troubled in heart, being troubled in spirit. That's what that word means. But think, Jesus is about to go to the cross He's about to bear the full weight of the sin of humanity. He's he's about to be alienated from his father for the first time in the history of everything. Jesus is, is about to go to the cross to suffer alone on a murderer's cross. But what does Jesus say? He tells his disciples not to be troubled. If there was any point where Jesus would need his disciples to step up, to be his encouragers, to be his band of brothers, to put their arms around him in that prayer circle and encourage him, this is the moment. This is the time when Jesus would need his disciples to be the encouragers. But what's he doing? (laughs) He's the one telling his disciples, guys, don't worry. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But why? Why does Jesus tell them not to worry? Well, context is key. We've got to rewind. We've got to go to the end of chapter 13 because remember, chapter breaks are not inspired. In the middle of this discourse, Jesus didn't all of a sudden say, and now John 14, verse one. No, that's not how it worked. Actually, in the Greek, there there wasn't punctuation. There wasn't even spaces between characters and between words. I mean, it'd be really hard to read. Anyways, that was doesn't have anything to do with what we're studying. But to understand what what is going on, we've got to look at the end of chapter 13. Follow along with me as I start in verse 36 of chapter 13. Then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. 
And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. And then Jesus says, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Does that blow your mind? Jesus predicts the most colossal failure of Peter's entire life. And not just Peter's life. I mean, it's really the rest of the disciples are right next to him. Peter was the only one who's brave enough to actually go into the courtyard besides maybe John. The rest of them had deserted Jesus a long time ago. So they're all about to walk into the biggest failure of their entire life. Jesus tells Peter, before the sun comes up in the morning, you're gonna deny me. You're gonna reject me. You're gonna call curses down from yourself, on yourself from heaven that you don't know me. You're gonna make the biggest failure of your entire life. But Peter, don't worry. Don't let your heart be troubled. Does that just blow your mind? What would you expect Jesus to say after, after predicting that Peter's going to deny him? I'd expect Jesus to say something like, Peter, how hard is your head? Don't you get it? You've been with me for three years. You've been telling me over and over again that you're going to die for me. When is it going to click? Is that what we'd expect Jesus to say? But what does he say? Don't let your hearts be troubled. The context is colossal and utter failure. I know we read this text at a funeral service. If you've been to a funeral recently, maybe you've heard this text, a great text, a comforting text, but the backdrop's not grief. The backdrop's failure. Now, Peter, the rest of the disciples who'd walked with Jesus for three years, if they make this type of failure, can I? Yeah. And so can you. But the antidote, the response to spiritual failure is not trying harder. It's not self-shame and punishment. What does Jesus say? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe. That we have to battle bewilderment with belief. That's our first principle tonight. Battle bewilderment with belief. And there are probably a couple things going on, a couple things the disciples were bewildered about. They were confused. They were confused about Jesus' plan. They believed in a Messiah that was going to come and, and overthrow the Roman Empire and set up this earthly kingdom. But within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be killed by the same empire that they thought he was about to overthrow. And while they're standing looking at the cross or while they're in the, the upper room hiding after Jesus is in the grave, Jesus tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know you're confused, but the story isn't finished yet. Maybe the same phrase is true for us tonight. Your story's not finished yet. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial, and it's hard to see over the wave we need to trust, we need to believe that Jesus is going to get us through. Maybe there's this looming doubt that says, are you sure that you're really a Christian? We need to go back to the gospel asking, have I believed in Jesus as my Savior? Maybe we're not quite as bold as we want to be and we're suffering with this shame of disappointing our Savior, shrinking back in fear. We need to believe 
that Jesus is the Savior of the world. When we fall back into sin for the hundredth time, instead of beating ourselves up, we need to believe that the cross can cover all of our sin. When we're tempted to ask, God, are you sure I can be forgiven? Look at my resume. Look at how many times I've asked for forgiveness for the same thing. Look at my past. Is it possible? Can I actually be forgiven? We need to believe that the cross covers not most, but all of our sin. Or maybe you felt like God is far away. Maybe you feel like he's far away today. Maybe that's by your own doing. Our sin keeps us from God. That was the case for Peter. He created this giant chasm in his relationship with Christ. Or maybe it's circumstances. So because of how you feel, you feel far from God because of depression or anxiety or loneliness or loss. You feel like God doesn't care. You feel like he's not listening. You feel bewildered. Your story's not finished yet. We fight bewilderment by looking back at what God's done for us in the past, by looking back to the cross, remembering the goodness of the gospel, remembering that when we believe in Christ, all of our sin, past, present, and future is paid for at the cross, remembering his deep and his unfailing love for us, remembering even the small things that he's done for us. In the moments of bewilderment, we need to go back to that place of scripture that reminds us the goodness of the gospel. It's that, that passage like maybe it's Romans 8 or maybe it's John 15 or Psalm 23 or a passage that can encourage your soul to go and read over and over and over again, battling the bewilderment. But more than just looking to the past and remembering what Christ has done, and in those moments, we also have to look to the future to see what's coming down the road. That's exactly what Jesus does next in John 14. Let me keep reading. Look at verse two, where Jesus says this, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I'm going, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus talks about his father's house. He's playing on this metaphor. It's really not a metaphor. It's more of the construction style of his day. Here's what would happen when somebody would get married. When a young man would get married, his father would build an extra room of an addition onto their home so that his son and his new bride could move in and their growing family could live with them. Now, if you're recently married, you might be thankful that's not our construction style of the day, or maybe we can turn the tables. And if you're uh, one of our leaders here tonight, you might be extra thankful that you didn't have to keep your kids living in the basement. I'm not sure. But that's what Jesus is saying. It's this picture of, of building on to the house, his father's house. For us, the, the father's house is most certainly heaven. He's looking ahead to the new heaven and the new earth. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be a no vacancy sign. We're not going to be cramped on space. We're not going to be pulling out our air mattresses and our camping pads and our, our backpacking tents. We're not going to be crammed into these tiny little cruise staterooms, right? When we get to the new heaven and new earth, it's huge. 1,380 miles cubed. It's kind of hard to fathom. It's like from here to Miami in a cube. It'd be as tall as stacking like 5,000 Sears towers on top of each other. I mean, this, thing, this thing's massive. And if it's a cube, that means that I'm probably going to be able to fly in heaven, which is going to be epic. It also means that our address is going to have to have an X, Y, and a Z axis, right? So no more Stark Street for me. I'm going to get promoted. 
And this is going to be amazing. We can't even comprehend what that is going to be like. But think of the significance of my father's house. It's not a rental property. This isn't an Airbnb. It's not a hotel. This is his house. This is his home. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew 25. He says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Heaven's not an afterthought. It's not a side project. It's not the leftovers. This is the pinnacle. It's the climax of God's creation. That's what we have waiting for us in eternity. And in the moments of bewilderment, we have to look at what Christ has done in the past and then look ahead to the future, knowing that he's coming back someday to take us home to the new heaven and the new earth. And Jesus says, if I go there and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me so that you can be where I am. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna get your room ready. And because I'm gonna get your, get your room ready, don't worry, I'm not gonna forget about you. I'm not just gonna leave you here. I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you home. I can only imagine that Jesus would be excited, that he is excited for the day when he can show us around our new place. Reminds me, maybe you watched the show a number of years ago, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. It was like a perfect Sunday night, you know, uplifting sort of TV show, right? If you never watched Ty Pennington do his magic for 207 episodes, he and his buddies would uh, come into this home and uh, often they would work with a family that was in need or a family that was facing a crisis. They would demolish their home and build a brand new one in a week. Now, I don't always believe that they did it in a week, but that's reality TV, I guess, isn't it? But when they came back after the week, they would, they would stand behind the RV, the bus. And then everyone would shout, move that bus! And the bus would move and they would see their house and they were thrilled. I mean, I think everyone cried in every episode, right? I definitely didn't as I watched it. But one thing that strikes me is how excited Ty and the rest of his crew was to, to give a tour. I actually think that they were maybe even more excited than the people who received the gift. Just imagine that's what it's going to be like when we get to heaven, that Jesus is going to be elated to give us a tour. The tour itself is going to have to last more than a week. So that's our second principle tonight, hunger uh, for our heavenly home. We've got a hunger for our heavenly home. How often do we think about eternity? How often do we imagine how remarkable the new heaven and the earth is going to be? Because this earth, it's not our final home. Everything here is going to pass away. It's going to cease to exist. My house, your car, your 401k portfolio, even our natural beauty like the Pacific Ocean or the Grand Canyon is going to be gone, which might sound disappointing until we remember that the new heaven and the new earth is going to far surpass any beauty, any satisfaction that we've experienced here and now. This takes trust, not just for the disciples, but for us that in this moment that we find ourselves in to look ahead with belief, knowing that someday we're gonna spend eternity with Christ and it's gonna be far better than anything we experience today. But did you see what Jesus said in verse four? And you know the way to where I'm going. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said a couple verses earlier at the end of chapter 13, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but then you're, you're gonna come with me afterward. And then Jesus says, but you actually know the way to the place that I'm going. So the disciples are, are confused and you can see that Tommy puts his hand in the air and he's like, hey, Jesus, I'm not gonna pretend that I understand what's going on. So he asks a question for everybody else and says, verse five, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's telling Jesus, 
You haven't given us step-by-step directions. You didn't plug the directions into our GPS. You just kind of told us that you're going to this place called the Father's house. We don't know where that is. We don't know how to get there. I mean, Jesus, you didn't plug the location into Apple Maps, which wasn't invented yet, but Apple Maps wouldn't get him there anyway because Google Maps is better, but that's not in the text either. But as Jesus answers Thomas's question, he provides one of the most important truths in all of the New Testament. Look at verse six. But Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells Thomas, you know where I'm going. You know how to get there. You don't need directions. You don't need a GPS. You don't need step-by-step instructions. All you need to know is one thing. And Jesus says, it's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, think back to our story about our three hikers. Some of you are maybe a little frustrated that I didn't finish the story. They didn't just need directions. They needed divine intervention. And I was clueless. I had no idea what to do. Our car was four or five miles in the wrong direction. Well, there was a guy staying with us at the same camping area. And he looked at these three young adults and said, I have an idea. My car is parked two miles away at a, at a, park, or at a parking lot. I'll give you the key. And they're like, well, we don't even have a flashlight. He's like, I've got an extra headlamp. You can even take my headlamp. You go go to my car, I'll give you a map, I'll give you directions, and then you can hike out two miles and you can drive those last eight miles down to your car and you can leave my car down, down there. It was a miracle, really. It was mind-blowing. And even this total stranger had enough faith that these other three strangers weren't going to walk off with this brand new Chevy Malibu and they were going to leave the keys in the gas cap. It was crazy. But you see what he did? This stranger, he didn't just give them directions, right? They didn't need directions. They needed a miracle. He gave them his keys. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us? Let me ask, what would happen if Jesus just gave us directions to eternity? If he just told us how to get there? Well, it sounded a little bit like Matthew 5 verse 20 where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, which would have been mind-blowing for Jesus' listeners because the scribes and the Pharisees were like the holiest people that they knew. They made laws about the laws, about the laws to make sure that they never broke God's law. But what does Jesus call the scribes and the Pharisees? A whitewashed tomb. It's like a very shiny on the outside, but full of rotting flesh on the inside. So if, if the Pharisees, if the scribes, if they weren't good enough, then nobody was. Jesus, if this is your standard, then how can anybody be saved? Well, because Jesus didn't just give us directions. He is the way. He came and lived in our shoes. He took on our form and our flesh. And he walked through life never sinning once. He didn't even violate one of the dots of an eye of all of God's law in thought, in attitude, and in action. And he goes to the cross bearing the full weight of your sin and my sin on his own shoulders in in the greatest exchange in the history of humanity as Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness. And he rises from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death once and for all. It's the best possible news that we don't have to face the repercussions of our sin, that we get Jesus' righteousness, that we get his life. Jesus didn't just give us directions. 
He didn't even just hand us the keys. Jesus is the key. He's the car. He's the road. Jesus is everything. He is the only way. And this gift of salvation has to be received by faith, trusting that when Jesus died, that, that he paid for your sin. In repentance, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turning away from that way of life, asking for forgiveness and following Jesus. That's the only way to the Father's house. If you haven't believed in Jesus for your salvation, it is hands down the most important decision you'll ever make. It's also the most life-changing decision you'll ever make. That's our final principle tonight. Discover Jesus as the directions and the destination. Jesus reveals the path because he is the path. He makes a way when there is no way. He bridges a gap that we never could cross. And at the same time, he's the one standing at the finish line, welcoming us home, giving us the house tour when we arrive. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Or to put it another way, Jesus is the way because he's the truth and the life. Let's talk about truth for a moment. We live in a world where truth just isn't that important. You can believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want to believe. And we can just agree to disagree. But John 14, 6 is about as objective of a truth claim as you can get. Jesus didn't say, I'm a way or I'm a truth or I'm a life. No, he said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It doesn't get much more clear than that. But it might be trendy in our world to say, ah, the Christians and the Jews and the Mormons, the Hindus, they all believe in the same God. They're all just looking at different parts of the same elephant and they're all gonna end up in the same spot one day. They just shouldn't disagree quite as much. It doesn't really make much sense because objective truth claims contrast each other. Let me prove it to you. Christianity says that Jesus is the Messiah, while Judaism says Jesus is not the Messiah. You can't fit those two things together. Christianity says after physical death, all people will face judgment. Hinduism says after physical death, then you'll be reincarnated based on your karma until you reach nirvana. Islam says Allah cannot have a son, while Christianity says that Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet, but he's, he's lesser than Muhammad. While Christianity says that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the prophet, the priest, and king. Christianity says that all people will exist eternally, while secularism teaches that no one will exist eternally. There is no life after death. Those are all objective truth claims that cannot be reconciled with each other. But when we believe in Jesus as the way, then we also believe in Jesus as the truth. He becomes not just a source of truth. He becomes the source of truth. He is the ultimate source of truth in our life. He's the ultimate test of what can be true and what's false. That if you believe in Jesus, if you've embraced him as your savior, then you're admitting that Jesus is right and that any truth claim that comes into conflict with Jesus, that truth claim has to be false. Now, we don't need to be a jerk about it, but we have to understand that when we embrace Jesus as the way, then he is also our truth. But what things do we look for for truth these days? What's our highest priority? Is Jesus the ultimate lens in which we see the world? Or do we look to CNN or CNBC or Fox News as our highest level of truth? Facebook fact checks? If this was on Facebook Live, now this message would get Facebook fact checked. 
parents, friends, significant others, Google searches, even ourselves in our own hearts, what do we look for for that ultimate lens of truth? Jesus needs to be the highest lens of truth that we look to, our highest priority. When Jesus is our truth, he makes the complicated simple. How do we respond to COVID-19? Well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. People need Jesus way more than they need my perspective on COVID-19, even though my perspective is most certainly correct. How do we handle death? How do we handle loss? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one who provides hope for life after death. How do we work through anxiety and depression? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't promise always to lift us out of the pain, but he promises to meet us and carry us through it. Your story's not finished yet. What do we do when we're in conflict with a coworker? Well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is far more important that our coworker sees the love of Christ through us than for us to win an argument. But Jesus is also our, our life. Reminds me of Ephesians 2, where Paul tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. We need an external force. We need someone to bring us to life. And that's what God's done for us in Christ. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus died for us. We've been made alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. It reminds me of Colossians chapter 3. Let me just read this. Listen to this passage. It's in verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Jesus is your life. Now, lately I've been a little extra burdened by some of the backpacks that you all have been carrying. Not the literal ones, the metaphorical ones. And it sounds a little bit like this. A lie that the enemy is placing in your mind. Are you sure your life is really worth living? What would happen if you just ended it all right now? Would anyone really care? What if you just kind of veered off the road? Would anybody notice? Or that bottle of pills? What would happen if you took the whole thing? My heart hurts for how often I've had this conversation in the last couple of months. Is your life worth living? Yes. Because Jesus is your life. You have purpose, you have meaning, you have value, not based on your performance, not based on what you've accomplished. The beauty of the gospel is that in ourselves, we're, we're more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever hope. Jesus is the way. He, he's made it possible for us to have a relationship with God by his own blood. He's paved the way when there was no way. And he's our truth in a world devoid of truth. Jesus makes the complicated simple and gives us the answers that we need. He's our life. He gives us meaning and purpose that transcends our circumstances. It transcends what we see in the mirror. It transcends what other people think of us. 
your value was determined 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for you on the cross. A price tag that no one could put a number on. You have value because Jesus says he has value. You, your life is worth living because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's hard to conceive a more encouraging yet challenging passage in your word. And may each of us embrace Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. Knowing that there is no other way to eternal life. There is no other way to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction and purpose in our life apart from what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. For those that are here tonight that might not yet have a relationship with you, may you draw them toward you. May they choose Christ. For those that are here tonight, for my dear brothers and sisters that are struggling, where the enemy might be tempting them with those questions of, of value and of worth, may you remind their hearts tonight that they have value because you say they have value, because they find life in you and that their life is worth living. And Father, for all of us, may the truth of the message of the gospel propel us into a deeper and deeper relationship with your son because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. So as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, may this be an encouraging time. Allow us to go deep with one another as we unpack this passage in our groups. In Jesus' name, amen.